0: You're listening to, listen to Westside Church. For more information, visit us at Westsideinfo.com. Good morning everybody. Hope you enjoyed your New Year's time and we are one week in. Doesn't feel a lot different from me, but still good. Um we are continuing through Acts today. Uh, last week we talked about Peter and John being brought before the Sanhedrin and this idea that the world is greatly annoyed by what we're doing, greatly annoyed by the message we're bringing, the fact that Jesus is going to interfere with the way they want to live their life and that their response to that can be pretty drastic and they're not, um, not going to shy away from it just because it's wrong. And so we... The only thing we can do is choose to how we respond within this. And so what we're going to see in the passage today is how the disciples are going to initially respond when they're released, and then we're going to get a little bit of insight into their community afterwards. And so because we just like alliteration, I'm this one is going to be talking about prayers and the poor. Um, but the idea of the poor is actually more of those that are needy or uh, they are in need. They've come into a situation in their life where they're a victim of circumstance. They're now no longer able to provide for themselves. And so we'll break that down more as we move on. But we're really going to start first on this idea of prayers as a response. And so Acts 4, when they released them, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal. And signs and wonders are performed through the names of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. So that whole first part of the passage is essentially one big, long prayer as an act of response to what God had just done in their lives. And they start by quoting Psalms, specifically Psalm 2, that was verses 1 through 2, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, and I'm not going to read the rest of the Psalm, but essentially what they're saying is they want to be free from God. They want to rid god from their lives and that god laughs at all their plans he is planning on giving the nations as a heritage to his son and kings would be wise to serve the lord and so this is a prophetic message this is prophetic of what's to come we see that this has happened this is continuing to happen And it's an interesting thing with prophecy because every now and then prophecy is a warning where it's saying hey change so this doesn't happen but sometimes we get prophecy where it's saying hey bad stuff's a-coming. And that's what you get. We look at the book of Jonah and we see that's the prophecy he was told to go and give against Nineveh. Tell them destruction's coming. There was no, but if you repent, I will relent. There was none of that. He just proclaimed destruction. However, the people did repent and God did relent. So every now and then when we read prophecies, we read these things to come, we see the signs of the times that we're living in, what God has said about it, even though he's saying that's coming, we still hope and we still warn. We still desire for people to turn to the Lord. We're still going to try, even though God says it's going to get worse and it's going to get worse and it's going to get worse. We still try. We still hope. We still warn people because there is still opportunity for them to repent and not have to face what's coming at the end for them. And so this is a big part in this, is that sometimes things are just going to pass. No matter how much we don't want them to, no matter how much we warn, some things are predestined, as they've said. And so this part, uh, I've got a wonderful quote from uh, the New American Commentary I was reading through this week. It says, In the paradox of human freedom and divine sovereignty, despite all the raging of humanity, God's purposes prevail. No matter how much we rage against what God wants, what God wants still happens. And whenever we read a passage like this, it's just a huge opportunity to get into a big, long discussion about free will and predestination. So I'm not going to get into a big, long discussion about it. I'm going to get into a short discussion about it. Um <laughs> And this idea of, do you have free will or not? Did these people have free will or not? God ordained for it to happen. It was in his plans and his purposes. And it did indeed come to happen. So do they even have free will? Does any choice I ever make matter? Because whatever God wants to happen will happen. And that is the question in regards to free will. And the short of it is you do indeed still have free will. It's still your choice. And I was thinking for quite a while on different analogies I could have given to try to explain this. And they were more convoluted and difficult than the next. I have actually in my notes here, pirates and crews analogy. And I'm not going that route this morning. Um, I'm going to roll back a little bit simpler. Is the idea that God can make whatever he wants happen, happen by influencing the world doesn't take your free will away any more than my preventing you from going out that door after the service. If you're going out that door and I go, no, you can't get out, I'm going to stop you and I prevent you and I lock the door and I burn it down and there's no way you can get out that door, you would never say, Joe, you're taking away my free will. That claim would never be made. You would say, Joe, you're being a nuisance and a jerk. I'm going to go out the other door now. But you would never declare that I've taken away your free will because I have prevented you from going out that door but we make the claim of God because he has closed a door that you can't open. You have taken away my free will, Lord. No, he hasn't. He's a person just like you, and he as a person could decide, I want something to happen, so I'm going to do everything in my power to make that happen. And he happens to be the most powerful person in the entire universe, and he can see all potentials in all of existence, and he can go, I know if I do this, that will happen, but that doesn't take away along the way your choices. Those choices always belong to you. And if you don't believe me still, you can argue with me about it later, but we're going to move forward. Because within this, knowing that difficult things are going to happen and we might not be able to escape them, they're just going to be. When we're talked to by Jesus, we're spoken to through the Spirit, they talk about, The difficulties to come. And within this, the disciples prayed for boldness. They didn't pray to take those things away. They didn't say, Lord, make the rest of my life easy, please. They said, despite all of this that's to come, please give us boldness to continue anyways. Because the people that are threatening us really do have our lives in their hands. They really can execute us. They really can throw us into prison. They really can beat us. They really can make our life a misery. It's within their power to do so. So give us boldness that we can walk through it anyways. And that's a difficult thing to face because most of us would prefer God to take away the challenge, to make it easier. That would be so much nicer and better. But it's not always what needs to take place. So Lord, we ask for the strength to go through anyways. So the first takeaway, the first part of this message, there's something interesting about this idea of prayer. And we have actually quite a few different opportunities for prayer here at this church. Uh, Every Wednesday evening, Mark and Kathy, I know they're here today, I'm just way in the back, there we are. Mark and Kathy, they lead that meeting every Wednesday evening. You can come here and you can pray. The small gathering of believers to intercede on behalf of our county and to plead out to the Lord. Every Thursday mid morning, there's a group of ladies that come, they go, they are over in the lounge, and they have a wonderful time, and they intercede on behalf of the county, and they're praying out to the Lord. The first Thursday evening of every month, we gather corporately here in this room. We praise the Lord, we proclaim his goodness, and we intercede on behalf of the county and the world, and we pray to the Lord. And Those meetings ebb and flow with the amount of people at them, depending on where people generally are at. But one thing I found out within the last probably six months is that a lot of people are deeply uncomfortable praying, particularly in front of anybody. They're just not comfortable with prayer and how to do it. It's not even so much they don't like the idea of prayer, but I don't know how to pray is usually the comment made. So I want to help with that a little bit today. Because the great desire is that praying out to the Lord should be the easiest thing in the world. And so, first of all, we can start with the Word of God to guide you. And in a couple different ways. Because Scripture itself, you can just pray that over your life, over your situation, over someone that you know is going through difficulties, praying it over their life. And you just read the Scripture as a prayer over them. For example, Psalm 23, someone going through a difficult time where they don't know all the answers, but they needed to be reminded of who God is and his goodness. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. But there does come times when you, you have some more specific things going on in your life. And you want a prayer to really hone into that. And you can still use scripture to help guide you. Out of Matthew 6, when Jesus tells us how we can pray, he says, when you pray, don't heap up empty phrases, as the Gentiles do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. And then use the prayer to lead you in each stage of it for your specific life. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. God, I know you're holy. I know you're divine. I know you can be in all places. I know you know all things. I know you can heal. I know you are good and righteous and faithful. I know these things, Lord. You are an amazing God, and I appreciate who you are in my life. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, I just ask that your goodness and your mercy floods into this world, into this nation. I pray for morality to become more prevalent. I pray for that to take a hold of people's hearts. I pray for your kingdom values to be here once more, Lord. Give us this day our daily bread. Lord, I thank you for the finances you've given me this month. I thank you for the food that's on my table. I thank you for the resources you've granted me that we do not lack, Lord. We ask that you continue to bless us with work. We ask that you give us increases if possible that we may continue to move forward. But I thank you for what you've given me this day. And forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. Lord, I have not been perfect, and I know that. And I ask you to forgive me for my arrogance and for my anger and for my resentment and for my attitudes and for my ill treatment of others, Lords. I ask you to forgive me of my loss of temper and my frustration. I ask you to forgive me of this, Lord, as you help strengthen me to overcome it in the times in the future. And I ask you to help me to truly let go of my irate nature at that driver that cut me off in the other lane as we were headed down to Folsom and they didn't know what they were doing and they were on their phone and let me let, me let it go, Lord. <laughs> And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Lord, protect us. Protect our church. Protect our family. Protect our households. We just ask that you protect us against sickness, that anyone is sick, that you completely heal them of it, Lord. We just ask that people are restored and made well. We ask for a protection and a restoration of relationships, that you bring us together into wholeness, into wellness, and that we are not tempted to stray away from your paths, Lord. In your name, amen. We use the Scripture to guide us when we're not familiar ourselves. How, we, how do I even pray? Use Scripture to guide you because as you allow Scripture to guide you, it guides you more and more into His will. We want to be praying in the will of God. Out of John 14, it says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. That the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. And that's not a magic formula to tag on the end of your prayer. Lord Jesus, I want a Maserati in your name. That's not what that means. When you're praying in the name of Jesus, you're praying in his name, you are praying as a representative of him. When you do something in someone else's name, you're doing it on their behalf as they would wish it to be. When we consider, the easiest illustration I have of this, of this is when we elect senators. Some believe they're delegates and some believe that they are representatives. A delegate is someone that you empower to go on your behalf because you believe in their good judgment, you believe in their character, you believe in all the things that they can do, and you say, go and do that. I believe in your judgment. A representative is not that. A representative goes on the behalf of the people they sent them, and everything they do is as those people would want it to be done. They completely remove their wants and wishes from the equation because they are being sent to represent someone else. You are a representative of Jesus. When you're asking in his name, it's as his representative. We're asking this as close as we humanly can for this to be in his will. And how can we know his will unless we are close to him? Unless we have an intimate relationship with him? Unless we know the things that God has done and does in our lives? Out of John 15, it says, abide in me and I in you. and it will be done for you. It's all about a deep and abiding relationship with God. We pray being led by scripture in the will of God through a relationship with God. And a relationship with God, like all other relationships, takes time. If you don't spend time with God, you won't have a good relationship. If you don't spend time with your friends, you won't have a good relationship. If you don't spend time with your spouse, you won't have a good relationship. But as you deepen that time and that trust and that understanding of who He is, because He already knows who you are, you find yourself closer and closer to the Father, closer and closer to Jesus, more clearly hearing the promptings and the will of the Spirit as He is with you and guides you every day. And it comes through an abiding relationship that will take time. Now that was the easy part of the message. Because we're going to talk about those that are in need now. We're going to see an insight into the community of these new believers, this new church that has been established after Jesus ascended. We're talking about when difficult times happen and people find themselves in need. and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So we're talking about what do we do when we find people in need? How do we operate as a community? How do we look at possessions? How do we look at finances? And this is ripe for misinterpretation and for difficulties and frustrations. And there are going to be some things in this that there are no easy ways to say them. So I'm going to let the word of God do it for me. I've spent a great deal of time thinking about how to soften the blow on some of these things in a way that can be received well. And some of them just can't. It gave me a headache trying to do so. Um, But this is actually talking about a utopian ideal that they were trying to live out that is derived from Deuteronomy 15 and the walking out is seen in Leviticus 19. This is what they were aiming at, a utopian ideal that is not necessarily just unique to the Jewish culture. God's outworking of it's pretty unique compared to how the rest of humanity wants to see this ideal. Um, Let's dive into it. Deuteronomy 15 should begin in verse 4, but there will be no poor among you. That is a utopian ideal, that there will be no poor. For the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess. If only you will strictly obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today. For the Lord your God will bless you as he promised you, and you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. You shall rule over many nations, but they shall not rule over you. If among you, one of your brothers should become poor. Well, that's a peculiar thing based on a couple of verses before, if no one's going to become, if there will be no poor among you, how on earth could someone become poor? And there's certain realities of the world we live in we must face, that people become victims of circumstance, where they were doing nothing wrong, everything was going well, they were making good choices, they were supported by their family and community, were moving through, and then things happen. Caldor fire is a thing that happened that wasn't because anything that anybody there living there was doing was wrong. But suddenly, they're all out of homes. Suddenly, they might have lost all their possessions. Suddenly, they are the worldly equivalent of poor. And they are in desperate need. And what do we do? They are a victim of circumstance. You have people that have worked their whole lives. They've done well. They worked hard. Things happen. Retirement doesn't seem to be a whole lot for a lot of people. It's a reality. So many people rely on social security when they get to the end of their lives as it is now. And then somebody passes into the next life and you lose half of your income because that's how it works. In case you weren't aware, you won't get both of those social securities anymore. You will get one. So you have someone in that situation who they're in their 80s, they've been operating on this for their entire lives, they've been planning on it and depending on it in their retirement and suddenly half the income is gone. They have suddenly become poor and in desperate need. Victims of circumstance happen when you don't do anything wrong, they still happen to us. So how do we respond? If any of the towns with your land of your Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. And now this one is going to throw us a little bit of a kilter. Is that word lend? That word lend has a very strong implication in it. When you lend something to somebody, you eventually expect to get it back. And that is what's implied here. But let's continue to see the deeper heart of what's being said. Take care, lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart. And you say, the seventh year, the year of release is near. The year of release was the year when all debts are cleared. So if it was the last day of the year and someone you lent a great amount to them, the very next day, completely forgiven. That's what this is talking about. And your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother and you give him nothing. And he cried to the Lord against you and you be guilty of sin. You shall give to him freely and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him because this the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake, for there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. We will not look selfishly on one another and that if there's a time when you're not going to give that back and you know you're not going to get it back, you're going to help them anyways. Now, how does the outworking of this normally look? Because we can say that and we can have our own imaginings of this, but what's the expected outworking? Because there are actually a lot of expectations within the community of God. Well, in Leviticus 19, it says, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest and you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. The rest of that passage talks primarily about not taking advantage of people. And it ends with, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So in the outworkings of providing for those in need, it's a lot different than we look at it now. Because we look at it now, we're going to provide for those in need, and I'm going to just give you something. I'm just going to hand it to you. There you go. But that's not what is being said. When you leave the things in the field, they have to go get them. And it's not like us going into the store and going and get them, where it's already prepared for me. No, when you go and get grain from the field, it has to be beaten and it has to be ground and it has to be baked if you want bread. It's hard work, but you're giving them the opportunity to put bread on their table. You're giving them an opportunity to make an honest day's wage. You're giving them an opportunity to survive and to eat. And you're allowing them the opportunity for this because they're in a spot where if you didn't give them opportunity for that, there was no other food to be had. There were no social security programs. There was none of this. The expectation is that you would take of what you had and you would leave some so they could survive. Contextually, we have to look at things. We are not in their same place, but the heart attitude should be the same. Now we look now at what the community of the believers were doing, and they were helping those that had need. They actually turned possessions into finances, and they did pay for things for people. As we do now, we have a benevolence fund at this church to help those that are in need. And here's a really important thing. If you don't tell us you have a need, we don't know. Very simple, I know, yet profound. (laughs) We have to know if we're going to be able to help you. And please, don't let the pride of your heart prevent you from getting help when you need it. Mm -hmm. Now, expectations. Things within this ideal where we help each other out when we're in need. First of all, 2 Thessalonians 3, For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate, for even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him Not eat. You don't get much brutal truth beyond that. Because when we look at a lot of folks in our society today, we can easily look out and say, they're not willing to work, so they don't get to eat. The clear idea here, though, is it's talking about a group of people that were choosing not to work because they eagerly anticipated the Lord was coming and that he was going to rapture them any moment, and they were just going to subsist off the church till then. They were purposefully taking advantage of the body. An expectation of us as a community that we will not purposefully take advantage of the body. That becomes really hard when people from outside the body come in, and we have to judge that as elders case by case by case on whether or not they're just making a living grifting off of people because it's a very unfortunate reality. And we have to put each and every one of those before God. But as a community, we will not purposefully avoid difficult choices and burden that with others. That's the expectation there. First and foremost, for the one that's in need, is it because I have refused to make hard choices? I want all my preferences, and I can't afford all my preferences, so I would like you to pay for them. The expectation is that we will not do that to one another. Second thing, though. James 2. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food and one of you says to him, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving him the things they need for the body, what good is that? You have a person. They've made bad choices. They've gotten themselves into this situation. They can't pay the electric bill. They can't go and buy groceries this week. they got a week before they get paid again. They're hungry. And saying, hey, We're going to look at your finances. We're going to get a plan. We're going to get things in order. We're going to get all this sorted. And then you'll be good. Have a great day. They're still hungry today. The electricity is still off today. They still need help today. Despite the fact that they've gotten themselves there, it is unloving to say, well, deal with it now. Is it vitally important that we walk them through the difficult choices they made and make them sit in that for a minute or two? You betcha. To be able to make a plan for the future so that this doesn't happen again? Yes. But they're hungry. We still feed them. The electricity is getting shut off. The food that's actually in the fridge at all is going to go bad. They're not going to be available to provide heat when it's 28 degrees outside. We help them. Yes, they made bad choices. Yes, they got themselves into this situation. Yes, we don't enable people. Which means we have to make sure we make choices where we're not going to be taken advantage of within this and helping them get out of that decision. But difficult things arise, and they're hungry today. That's not the most difficult thing yet. (laughs) 1 Timothy 5. When it becomes the responsibility of the church to step in. Mm -hmm. And there are really important times when the church is going to step in. But there's a but first honor widows who are truly widows. So the idea of the church is primarily people they support are orphans and widows, those that lack any ability to care for themselves anymore. Someone who's an orphan at that time had no opportunity unless someone gave pity on them and took them in as an apprentice. But if no one was willing to do that, they were going to starve to death unless they stole. End of story. Similar situation for a widow who's gotten usually to a certain age category that they had talked about in other passages, that they will have no opportunity for income in their day and age. Church is going to basically pay all of their finances. It's going to care for them, going to manage what they need. Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. There's no nice way to say that. But I'm sure most of us have that person we know or that person within our family that just seems to screw up or make bad choices over and over and over and over and over again. And they always find themselves in that space of need. And how do we respond? Because they will Never, I don't encourage double negatives, they will never not be your relative. (laughs) That person will always be your relative. That doesn't go away. When Peter asked Jesus, how many times am I to forgive? Seven times? Seven times, 70 times? Jesus' response was perpetually you to forgive them perpetually, Peter. Again and again and again. Does that mean we're not wise in this? No. But does that mean we have to check our heart in this every single time? Because there's some cultural context that needs to be looked at that has caused some great challenges for us within this, particularly in America. First of all, A lot of these challenges we see now and living situations and paying bills could simply be taken away if we return to their living style, Mm -hmm. which was generational living. Not very many people like to hear that one. You're going to move back in with mom and dad, you're going to move in with some aunts and uncles, you're going to bring in your grandma and grandpa, and you're all going to live in the same house together forever. We laugh because we don't want to (laughs) cry. But that's their reality. Those, that group I just listed would have of course been all in the same home. When one of the children got married, they'd have built a room onto the house. This is your space. They will live together. They will work together. They will provide for each other within their own household. That's why when they say if they're not willing to provide someone within their own household, they're literally talking about the people who live in your house You're not helping your uncle out? They're not eating. They live in your house. You couldn't spare him a loaf of bread? We have several families in this church that live off of generational living. I've never heard one of them complain about it. They're actually quite happy with it. There's a lot of great benefits to it but we've got this american notion it's an american notion it's not a biblical notion it's not a holy notion it's an american notion that i will live alone forever <laughs> i will have my space for me i'll close the door and all of you will go away it's so very american but it's not a conducive to surviving well because it's really particularly on either ends of the adult spectrum, the early 18 to early 20 years, and people when they get in the OLD category. And you can categorize yourselves. <laughs> but we take people when they're 18-year-olds to early 20s, and as a culture we say, hey, 18, out you go. Go survive when it costs 1500 bucks a month for a one-in-one with no washer and dryer on a tiny little plot of land. You'll be okay, right? When we look salary-wise and if they're trying to attain anything and they're managing a job and maybe if they're trying to get some schooling or apprenticing or something, they're maybe making around $3,000 a month. And so half their salary is gone just to have a place to stay. And then we look at any other expenses along with that and we say, you'll be fine. Just do what I did and live with like five other people your age. Because what could possibly go wrong when we shove people of that age and all of those hormones and all those changes going on? And you know people fully don't develop their brains until they're 25? And we're saying, you'll all be good. Get out of my house. And we expect it to go okay. We expect them not to come out of crippling debt and make awful, terrible decisions early on in their lives. But culturally we say, no, that's the way you do it. And then you have people on the other side. I've lived alone for 50 years. I can't live with someone else now. That's a real thing. I've heard that so many times. And I think it's easier for me to say now. I'm not in that situation yet. But I can look at it now and going, I'm going to start making ways now to prevent getting there. When we bought our house, there was space where we could build an apartment within it. So if we ever got to that spot, we could bring a parent or a grandparent into the home because that's how people were expected to live. I think about that idea of living by myself. If I end up being by myself at that age, if I survive, I'm pretty sure I'm going to die before my wife. Kind of hoping for it. (laughs) I don't want to (laughs) be... Who wants to be alone? (laughs) But at that point, and you're in that house by yourself and you just fall. What's going to happen? How long before someone finds you? And yet if you were in the house where the rest of your family is and there's kind of people in and out all the time and you find grandma or grandpa pretty quick. Standard of living. For them, we have plenty of food. We have plenty of clothing. We have four walls. We are kings. Is that how we live now? No, it's plenty of food, plenty of clothing. Must have running water. The toilet's got to be inside the house. Two cars outside in the nice neighborhood. I need to have grass. I need to have land. All these different things things that we start categorizing onto that standard of living in our ways. They're all good things. None of these are bad things. If you can get them, avail yourselves of them. But when we look at a standard of living and we look at I'm in need, are you? Because I don't have what I want, do you have what you need? We help each other when we are in need. Not simply because I'm in want. Want is really closely associated to that word deserve. It's a bad word. You deserve what you can afford. And part of the things you can afford is wisdom. Now, on the flip side of that, expectations of family. It would have been absolutely expected that the families would be helping first. Families would be having the hard decisions with those in difficult places. They would be having the hard conversations about difficulties in life, about maybe it's time for you to move back into the house. We might need to cut a few things out of the budget. You might have to get rid of your 13 reptiles because you can't afford your electric bill. But Godzilla! They couldn't get rid of him! You can't pay the electric bill, you can't afford the lizard. (laughs) Opportunity for income. Talked about this a little bit. They had situations where there was never gonna be income coming in. We see that a little bit in our day and age. We can't kick someone out and expect them to be super successful in life when the income they're gonna get will only allow them that when they're three steps down the road. We help people get there. I got all these lists about wants versus needs, my personal pet peeves, my wife warned me, don't get into the weeds, Joe, don't get into the weeds. So I just listed them so you could read them yourselves. (laughs) But we have to figure out how we respond. When you are the person who's not in need, the person who is is, who maybe made all manners of bad choices or has been refusing to make the difficult choices yet, but they come home and knock on that door or pick up that phone and say, I'm in need. How do we respond? We have to ask ourselves the question, am I generous and forgiving? Will I show them the love of the Father? When we look at the parable of the prodigal son, He made so many bad choices. Everybody knew he was making bad choices. There was no question in this. But when he finally came to his senses, realized, I am deeply in need, he tried to make it work and found he couldn't. So he went home. And he went home not asking dad to bail him out, but asking dad to give him an opportunity to let him work for his own bread. And dad said, You are my son. I will bring you in. I will show you the love of the Father. Come, let's celebrate. You're here. We don't hear about the rest of his life. I'm sure it had some difficult conversations. I'm sure there were some changes that needed to be made in their lives. I'm sure there were healthy boundaries that had to be put in place. We don't hear the rest of that. But what we do hear is about the other son. You, me, everybody. (laughs) Who wants them to feel their decision a little more. You made a bad choice. You need to sit in it a little bit longer where I can watch you sit in it. I know you sat in it there, but I didn't see it. <laughs> and we have to ask ourselves, do we have a generous and forgiving spirit? Is our desire to show them the love of the Father? They, we can have all the good conversations, all the truths about all the bad choices and all the things and all the things they need to change and they will all be true. But they don't feed them if they're hungry. Those truths don't clothe them if they're too cold. If you had a family member that has nowhere to go, they're in their car, they made bad choices, they got kicked out of their place, and they come home last night when it was 28 degrees and they knock on your door and you say, well, you made your bad choice, go sleep in your car. That's not love. It could be hey in the morning you're gonna have to go and you can have a healthy boundary there because that in of itself is truth and grace healthy boundaries are good just justice without grace isn't love so we have to ask and it'll be the last thing i say do i love my neighbor as myself